And why am I spending all this time and doing all these things? But lo and behold, five years later, they walk up to me and say, hello, remember me? And then I say, hey, it's okay to sit in the office because these people in front of you aren't going to be dead, many of them. And many of them are going to call you up as they have and said, you know, I didn't die because you said I didn't have to. And that bit of hope is what turned them around. And I think hope is real for every individual. Whenever students or other physicians say to me, uh, oh, but you're giving false hope, I say, all right, define it. And then they go, uh, uh, well, um, uh, I say, right, there isn't any. Hope isn't statistical. I mean, you can have 99 people out of 100 die of a disease, but is that a reason that one can't have hope? And so why not give the 100 hope that they can be the one? I think there is false no hope. I know that doctors are killing a lot of people, as well as articles, because they say there's no hope. But it isn't true. We are now beginning to see not only cancer survivors, different neurological diseases like multiple sclerosis and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, but AIDS survivors too, who have even reversed their blood tests. You see, suddenly it's popping up in the literature, as well as at meetings, people saying this. So there is hope for every individual. And it is when you tell people there isn't that I think you really take away something that you don't know about. How I back this up always is with money. Because what I would say to any physician is, if you're willing to bet me a year's salary against my year's salary, that I will read a pathology report, and if you can guess within six months of when that individual died, then you get my year's salary. If you miss, I get yours. And every doctor says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't predict like that from a report. Then they say, then why do you do that when they're sitting across the desk from you in the office? You tell people when they're going to die. If you don't know and you're not willing to put your money behind it, then don't kill anecdotes. And that's another way I get people to survive because physicians say to me, well, you're not talking statistics and you're not this and you're telling stories and they're all anecdotes. I say, wonderful. If an anecdote walks into your office, don't kill them. Let them survive. Let them be an anecdote. I started doing this because I found that stories were less controversial, that when I presented things at a medical meeting or at the hospital with statistics, we argued about the different articles and the different statistics. You just start yelling at each other. But when you tell stories, people don't yell. They listen, and then they say, well, that's just a story. I say, that's right. Maybe someday a story will walk into your office or keep your eye out for one. But we leave friends, and we leave a little more open-minded because they do go back to their office, and then I get a call saying, oh, you know what? Look what happened, what you were talking about. Or here's a patient that's driving me crazy, but you'll love. And that gives people the right to survive, in a sense, in that doctor's office. The problem is people get diseases, and medicine really falls short in the treatment of people who acquire these diseases. I see medicine as a very mechanistic, cure-oriented specialty, that we are oriented towards disease, and we are working at curing everything. The problem is, as you look back at medical history, I was reading a book called The Horse and Buggy Doctor by a Dr. Hertzler, who was a general practitioner in the Midwest, and the book starts out, God Save Us from Diphtheria. And today, nobody's running around in a panic over diphtheria, but a lot of books start out, God save us from AIDS. Fifty years from now, there'll be books that start out with a new disease, and nobody's afraid of AIDS. And I think that this is what physicians have to realize. Every generation has something it dies of. And what we really need to do is focus on people. Recently, I talked to a lady who had a heart-lung transplant at Yale. We gave her a new heart and new lungs, and she's alive today. But she said to her surgeon, I'd like to see a psychiatrist. I really need to talk about my feelings. Somebody had to die for me to live. How do I thank their family? And he said, basically, get on your exercise bicycle and work it out. And I think that's where medicine fails. We're not treating people.
In medical school, what we focus on from day one, in almost all medical schools, a few are beginning to change, is the disease. And so by the time a person shows up in your third or fourth year, you focus on disease, not the person. And therefore, we are focusing on sickness, and we're telling people who are really sick to come back to the office frequently. If you do well, we tell you not to come back or come back next year for a checkup. So what begins to happen is your office, your waiting room, is filled with sick people. And the ones who do well are told not to return or don't ever come. And I began to realize that medicine is probably the only failure-oriented system. I mean, who would ever run a business based on failure? You know, if you have a good salesman, you say to your other salesman, find out what that fellow's doing and mimic him. We're making a tape to teach you how to be a successful patient. But medicine has never stopped to say why. And what medicine has done is, if you are successful, they give the disease credit.